Hello athletes and fitness enthusiasts. My name is David Damerov and I'm a sport nutritionist and I welcome you to my brand new podcast where I talk with invited guests about sports science, nutrition, training, recovery, you name it. Today my guest is Daniel Plotkin, a PhD candidate who has conducted numerous of research including some with Brad Schoenfeld. We will cover some of them in this podcast in great detail, so please stay tuned in until the end. I think you would love our talk because I definitely will. Enjoy! I'm really, really appreciate that you agreed to uh, to have a podcast with me, and I uh, hope that uh, you will find it interesting as well. And uh, the clients and the people who are gonna listen to this podcast will find it interesting, because um, I've been following you for a while. I found out about you when I was reading a BCA uh, paper. Uh, we're gonna talk about this paper a little bit later, but yeah, I found about you, and I thought like this is a really cool paper, and. Uh, um, it answers a lot of a lot of questions about uh, this common misconception about BCAs in a scientific way, and this was exactly what I was looking for. So I thought about like reaching out to you and saying how how good this paper was, and that's how we started to follow each other. And I found I find what you do uh, really interesting because um, I've stopped a little bit in terms of academic progress just yet. I stopped a little bit sooner, uh, so I've finished my bachelor and master's degree in UK and you're progressing with your PhD, which is a um, uh, thing that I, I, I'm a little bit scared of and maybe we'll do it someday, but yeah, we'll talk about it as well. But let me introduce you first. So, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I've collected this information from the internet, which is not always right, as we know. Uh, you have eight, eight published papers uh and with almost 19 19k reads and about hundreds of citations so your main area of research is uh focus on the uh, architecture of a muscle uh, the metabolism of the muscle uh the um, uh, training adaptation of the muscle in terms of uh, biochemistry bio um uh, biology like how it changes and uh, um when you put different types of load at the same time based on the paper that i already said bca you have like also interest as me in supplements so um what made you decide to go into this particular direction in your research and what why did you decide to start uh, doing phd at all yeah so uh not not too long of a story unfortunately my origin story is not super exciting so uh like most people they, they sort of play sports as a kid and they realize that some people are just uh, a lot more talented than, than they are, stronger than they are. You know, they seem to just have this thing that you don't have. And so you start looking everywhere for how, how do I get better, stronger, faster and uh, sort of try to compete with these freaks. And so I was I wrestled in, in high school. Unfortunately, I didn't start wrestling earlier and uh, I was already a little bit behind because I started late. And uh, so I tried to find papers and look for stuff that helped me on my way to competing with those freaks. So learning to cut weight, learning to unfortunately dehydrate myself more than I should, uh, learning to lift weights in order to get bigger, stronger, faster was my initial motivation. Obviously there was also the aesthetic component. So everyone wants to look like a superhero when they're younger. I shouldn't say everyone, but most little kids, you know, they see Superman and they see those muscle magazines and they just want to look like a freak. So I had two sort of motivations that went hand in hand where I wanted to look good 
and I also wanted to compete well in the respective sport and try to get an edge. I think the first time, which is, I think, kind of funny, the first time I ever heard of PubMed was my senior year of high school, where Charles Poliquin actually mentioned mm -hmm. PubMed out of nowhere to Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss was asking him um, where he gets his information, and he said, oh, PubMed. And then I was like, what the hell is that? So I looked into it and I was like, oh, there's like a trove of you know, studies where people care about figuring out how is muscle regulated, how, how best to, you know, uh, structure your programming for different performance variables. So uh, I don't know if Charles Poliquin would be the, the archetype of scientific, you know, uh, he definitely veered away sometimes, but he was definitely a... Uh, uh, he paved the way, I think, for a lot of strength coaches. So I'll give him that. What, but what made you think that uh, looking at scientific <laughs> papers is actually a reliable source of information? Because um, we have like a, a scientific background. We kind of understand this objective approach. We <laughs> try to uh, find limitations of the studies and try to basically scrutinize every theory uh, aspects as, uh, of the studies. And, to make them better and to find caveats and things like that. But a lot of people, they look at studies as something they mm -hmm. can't trust. They would rather trust a friend. They would rather trust a coach who have like, as uh, Brad Schoenfeld likes to call it, N equals one experiments. They, they, they like to, uh, to rely on this anecdotal evidence, which is obviously not an objective way of measuring uh, best approaches. But what made you choose science and what might you trust into scientific approach and why do you think it's important? Yeah, I think uh, sort of getting into the philosophy or the epistemology of science, like there's certain people who you, who you will never convince that science is the way to assess whether something is effective because they don't have the same epistemic viewpoints as you do. If you can't convince someone that isolating a variable and trying to see what happens on a group level and apply it to the individual afterward, uh, then you're sort of never gonna be eye to yeah. eye with that person. So it really just depends on whether the person is willing to accept that we can isolate variables and we can look at things in a systematic fashion and rule things out, put things in, find mechanisms, and then take all that information and turn it into actionable, uh, actionable things that people can do to make themselves better. Then they're we're never going to see eye to eye. They're going to say, "Oh, I'm an individual. I I can uh, see that my friend got jacked off of this pre workout, so I'm going to take it." If they can't see the flaws in that, then you're sort of never going to see eye to eye. So I think meeting people where they are, especially if they're clients, makes a lot of sense in terms of if they're not willing to sort of look at the hierarchy of evidence and accept the hierarchy of evidence uh, epistemically, then you can meet them where they are in terms of, okay, well, how about these people who did this and they got the same result or is sort of trying to find a way to, you know, maybe slowly introduce some scientific concepts and question their beliefs without hammering them with like, this is the hierarchy of evidence. Anecdotes are uh, very low on the yeah. hierarchy. And, you know, so I try to not be too dogmatic about it when speaking to yeah. people, but I do think that systemically looking, systematically looking at an issue 
and trying to isolate variables and trying to see the way forward through there, even though there are definitely issues and individualization, stuff like that, which I think we'll sort of talk about later is a problem in terms of the technology we have and the way we generally, at least in exercise science, probe questions is hard to do in terms of individualizing for uh, specific cases. You know, what I, when I try to talk with this kind of people, I would, you know, they, because they, they judge uh, by uh, experience, by personal experience, I would say like, okay, there's, that's the study, right? They have like, let's say 20, 30 participants. That's the experience of this 20, 30 participants uh, that's been uh, looked from outside, you know, from the, they've been blind, though they didn't know. So they have like, uh, this is experience as well. So you you uh, you like to compare experiences, right? So I'm telling you, this is like it has even maybe not even one study it has like uh, meta analysis with hundreds of participants, and that's the approach that shows to be the best approach. And you're putting uh, you neglect this completely and, and say that this one participant, which you're referring to probably like your personal experience or your friends or some other uh, authority, um, you kind of put this into more value than you put this hundreds of people just because you don't know them, right? But yeah. the other people, uh, uh, we, we're not going to talk about, but there are other people who completely uh, uh, do not believe into science and they they think that it's all been uh, corrupted. And, fabricated, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fabricated. And so there's <laughs> big, uh, big corporations behind it and every single research has an incentive of selling this shit and... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish I wish we had that kind of money in, in our lab currently, but unfortunately that's just uh not the case. Usually it's yeah. pretty we, we hamstring together funds in order to look at things we're interested in. And sometimes we do, many times we work with industry in order to get those funds, but there's definitely a bunch of other things you want to look at, methods, um, how you really want to probe how they looked at the question and then decide from there rather than saying, Oh, the funding came from this source. We could just dismiss the evidence completely. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. And to your point, that's a, that's a great point. Like all these people in studies are people and those are all individuals and yeah. they're to layer on top of that. The placebo effect is super real. So your friend, Man. you know, could have, <laughs> could yeah. Have about, easily, the, about the yeah. placebo effect, this study that I always, uh, um, bring up when the conversation about placebo that still shocked me like a lot we know about the psychological effect of placebo there is a physiological effect of placebo as well there is a study uh, where they compared the effect of uh, caffeine on and placebo so they basically did standard uh double blind randomized control trial of caffeine and the, and the placebo where <laughs> they i don't know they ran on the, on the treadmill and they measured their fat oxidation so mm -hmm. uh and then by the end of the second trial uh, of each participant, they said, oh, sorry, we we kind of gave you placebo both of the times. So we mixed it up. So <laughs> could you come back a third time and we're going to give you the actual caffeine and we're going to test it. But they actually were correct. And they gave one time caffeine and second time placebo. And the third time they, they gave them placebo again. But the, but the participants were convinced that they were taking caffeine this time. And you know what they showed? They showed that the fat oxidation actually was similar to actual caffeine intake. So this was interesting to me that science thinks something physiological, which you could not control. Like you could control psycho psychological aspects. You control your RPE or things like that. You could push a little bit further if you're convinced the substance works. But like something physio physiological uh, as fat oxidation that changes in your body is completely uh, new to me. And uh, man, this, this kind of study shocked me a lot.
Yeah, there's definitely an interplay within with psychology and physiology for sure. I think one study, which I want to see replicated, showed that testosterone and placebo performed similarly, oh, which was absolutely bonkers. But I, I, I do not think that will be replicated personally, but there, it does exist. So uh, why, why, why not? Because, because of his ethical questions or why? Oh, I just don't. I think if the study was done again, I'm just skeptical of the results. I, I don't think placebo is that powerful that, yeah yeah man. Uh, yeah but it, i mean maybe I'm, i could definitely be wrong i just uh, i'm definitely i i draw a line somewhere in terms of how powerful placebo can be but there is definitely an interplay between physiology and psychology that people uh, dismiss and this this is why we need to do the scientific studies and have a placebo group and look at yeah. the effects um, above placebo yeah. Talking about the placebo, um, if you come into any um, supplement store, probably uh, first supplement will be whey protein and the second one uh, is BCAAs. And <laughs> they would rarely have EAAs while, you know, that um, uh, there are 20 amino acids and 11 of them are essential. Uh, and EAAs are kind of all of these 11 essential amino acids while BCAAs are only three essential amino acids. And uh, there are some conditions where you would uh, not drink whey protein, but you would rather pick EAAs. Uh, so where would BCAs come into play? Why do you think it's such a... So sometimes you would come into this uh, supplement store and you would not see ECAs at all. You would see a big tile of BCAs. <laughs> um, what what does the science says about BCAs in terms of muscle hypertrophy and muscle strength, and why do you think it's such a such a popular supplement in the market? Yeah, why it's popular is an interesting question. Maybe I'll dive into that after. I I, I know less about that because that's more of a historical question rather than a physiological yeah, yeah. question. But in terms of the evidence on BCAs, it is very sad that it is the supplement that's super popular that gets reached for a lot more often than EAAs because leucine is one of the three BCAAs. So there's leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And that specific amino acid is involved in signaling for muscle protein synthesis. And there's a threshold at which you need to hit a certain leucine in order to get that muscle protein synthetic response. So the theory was, was that if you can have that signaling, then you would have a more robust anabolic response a more what is the robust threshold? yeah what is the, the threshold? threshold is a threshold is a point at which you'll reach the peak response and then above that you're not going to have a further response so below it you will not maximize anabolism and then once you reach it you do maximize anabolism so it's it <clears throat> there's back and forth in the literature as to where exactly it falls but the general consensus is that for young, healthy individuals is between two and three grams of leucine. And the problem with this uh, per meal, per meal, right? Per meal. Yeah. Per sitting or per uh, bolus. So if you upregulate the signaling, but you don't have the building blocks, you, you don't go anywhere. So essentially let's say, let's say I'm in a bar and I got into a scuffle with 50 people and I call all my friends. I say, you know, I start screaming and I only have two friends. It's not going to help me that I'm screaming really loudly, right? Like only those two friends are going to help me. And those two friends aren't enough against these 50 people. So the same yeah. thing here, 
you have the leucine that's doing good signaling. And there's a lot of studies that look at, all right, you see an upregulation of mTOR, you see an upregulation of all these anabolic signaling markers, but they're not measuring muscle protein synthesis directly. So there's a disconnect there where the signaling is there, but the building blocks are not present. And those building blocks are the EAAs, all the essential amino acids, the, the ones you were talking about, the non-essential amino acids that we can't produce ourselves and we need. So if anything, that leucine after a certain point could actually be limiting those other amino acids in terms of for transport into the muscle. So there's even some studies which uh, use arteriovenous uh, differences in order to look at muscle protein synthesis that showed a decrease in MPS from BCAAs. I think the majority of evidence points toward the fact that there is an upregulation, just not as much upregulation as EAAs, but there's even some evidence that there's a downregulation in muscle protein synthesis from BCAAs. So there's- Why do you think is that? What, 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 if you would speculate, why would you think BCAAs would be, what scenario would they would downregulate the signaling pathway? Yeah, so if you look at, there's, there's two main uh, times where you'll consume BCAAs, it's either near a meal or a good amount away from a meal. So if you're in a fasted state, then the scenario would be different than when you're not in a fasted state. If you had some circulating amino acids and the necessary signaling was satisfied by leucine, then you would get a robust anabolic response because of the fact that you have those circulating essential amino acids and all you needed was that signaling bit and not the building blocks, right? But if you were in a fasted state, and like I said, these are only a few studies, it's not every study, but uh, two studies, I think specifically, but if you're in a fasted state and you have, and you direly need those EAA building blocks, leucine especially at the high doses that it's being taken in a BCA supplement and the other essential amino acids, because many of the transporters are uh, the same transporter for many of the essential amino acids, you could actually be limiting the entry of those essential amino acids from re-entry because there's breakdown of muscle constantly, and then it re-enters, right? So you could actually be blocking the re-entry of some of the essential amino acids by flooding them with the BCAAs. Mm. So that's, that's somewhat speculative because it's really hard to trace amino acids uh, in general, but also back from the muscle tissue. Uh, so that's definitely uh, speculation, but there, the studies that show the decrease that do definitely exist, but I'm not super confident that there'll be a negative effect. But what I am confident in is that if you're going to reach for something, make it an EAA, not a BCA, if that makes sense. Uh, what do you think would be a scenario where BCA would be more advantageous to EA if there is a such scenario? In the context of anabolism, like building muscle, I do not think that there is a scenario. I think that there's some... Maybe in terms of uh, like, availability, in terms of digestion, anything like that, or EAs are free form anyway. It doesn't matter if it's 11 of them or three of them, they come into your bloodstream and into your muscle at the same speed. Yeah, I, I, I think that I couldn't think of an instance where they're, I mean, they're both digested super easily. They're both readily available. I mean, the only instance would be, yeah. unfortunately, EAs are just hard to get, it's hard <laughs> to get your hands on them sometimes. I'm like, what Man, the hell? Yeah. Like, it's really annoying, actually. 
Man, so, I was trying. Yeah. I was trying to make that joke after the finish, yeah. Because sometimes <laughs> it'd be a scenario. Because when you choose between nothing and BCAs, you probably go for it, man. Probably but, go BCAs yeah. if not, between nothing and yeah, BCAs. I'd probably go BCAs. But luckily, <laughs> we did a study. I think uh, a little while ago before I entered the lab here at Auburn, and we have like a closet full of EAAs. And yeah. so, um, yeah. So we're we're chilling. But the rest of you guys can figure it out. <laughs> yeah man uh, tell me about it Tim. Yeah. Uh, so some some hard uh, sometimes it's hard to get certain supplements especially uh, in in some other countries yeah. if you know what i mean and that's and that's like a big reason why so like the big reason why we wanted to do the review is just to mm -hmm. it's not like these companies can't produce eas like they're happy to make money off of them so if we could just shift the conversation in terms of what is actually efficacious then people could just reach for eas instead and you know the cost i don't believe the cost is much different i think they're fairly comparable so it's just shifting the pr perspective the, the market on, on, yeah the yeah the customer the market perspective. Perspective. yeah exactly uh, uh what would be like the main findings of your review paper in on bcas with alan uh what what if you would summarize which i know scientists especially the researchers who've done the research i hate to do because you spend so much hours so many hours on the researching like come on man i'm not gonna summarize into two sentences but if you like if i'm uh, late for the train and i it's like between life and death how would you summarize the main findings of your review paper Yeah, if you wanted like a quick rundown, it'd be if you get adequate protein, if you're getting near 1.6 grams per kilogram per day of protein, BCAs or even EAAs are not going to help you in terms of growing more muscle. And then the next point is, is that if you don't get adequate protein through your diet, then reaching for BCAs might help you, but getting the full complement of EAAs is going to be likely better. And then in the context of an older individual, perhaps making mixing meals with something that's higher in leucine or getting a higher protein amount per meal because their leucine threshold may be a little bit higher, especially less active mm -hmm. older individuals, their leucine threshold may be a little higher, getting more grams of protein per meal might help in maximizing the anabolic response for them. But if they can't get that protein per meal, perhaps adding something like a BCA or a leucine specifically might help maximize the anab that anabolic response. But I'm more skeptical of that last point. I'm very confident in the previous two points in that if you're getting adequate protein yeah. and you're, you're so going basically, to reach yourself. Uh, consume yeah. around like 1.6 to 2.2 grams of uh, protein per kilogram and you're fine. Just uh, Exactly. Um, yep. But what if you, uh, if we're not talking about resistance training, which usually takes uh, the workout of resistance training, usually lasts about like what, an hour, maybe more, maybe less, two hour stops, I think nobody yeah. trains longer. But we know uh, like ultra endurance athletes who run for more than two hours and uh, their workouts uh, per week could be full of such work uh, sessions, you know, when they run for two, three, four, maybe even longer than that hours. How um, can BCAs or help them there? Or you would rather, again, go for EAAs as a peri-workout or post-workout or pre-workout? Um, what, what would you suggest about it? 
Yeah, so I know a lot less about endurance running, but I know there is definitely some evidence that points toward the fact that they have more breakdown and replenishing those EAAs would be uh, something to look into for them. But that's definitely not my area of expertise. So I think the, the paper focused more on the general public's view that it's for anabolism, for muscle hypertrophy. But I know in endurance context, it is something that coaches have mentioned, but I've only trained people for uh, either sports that were anaerobic in nature. So MMA, basketball, whatever, basically every sport that's not ultra endurance for ultra endurance purposes, especially really long endurance events, maybe there'd be a benefit, but yeah, I know a lot less about that. Do you, do you have any experience with um, yeah, um, longer with the EAs, yeah. Uh, so uh, I've read some studies because I'm now into. I try to be more uh, shift my perspective a little bit from anaerobic type of uh, training. I don't yep. know. I want to be more. Uh, I like watching different types of sports, and um, I, I run now a lot as well. So kind of interesting as well into muscle breakdown during such a long training sessions. Yeah. And yeah, there is uh, definitely a, a smaller uh, muscle protein breakdown after. Uh, this long workouts, if you consume uh, the BCAs, I mean EAs, or maybe BCAs as well during a workout. So uh, especially it would affect DOMS, uh, so um, delayed onset muscle soreness, and it would also affect yeah. their recovery. So uh, probably after uh, the day or two after this long run, if you have consumed the EAs uh, during this run, uh, you would recover a little bit faster. That's I think, yeah. I have seen some. I've seen some work on delayed onset muscle soreness. What, what I always worry about in terms of for muscle protein breakdown is that a lot of that breakdown in both an endurance context and a resistance training context is necessary turnover. So I wonder whether consuming those EAAs is necessarily beneficial in terms yeah, of man. what and it does to muscle protein breakdown. You're bringing to the bringing me to the next point, which is uh, I want to talk about is the limitations of the studies. Is because a lot of the studies that um, we do uh, don't mind me calling calling we. <laughs> I haven't done any study. I've tried, I have one unsu- unsuccessful publication yet, but well, I'll probably so you, get there. I mean, <laughs> you tried. That's what matters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but I, I would like to call us as a human species and say we have yes. tried to publish it. <laughs> and yes, um, I agree. Uh, and say basically there there are limitations with when you study something like uh, long term adaptations such as muscle hypertrophy, hypertrophy, muscle strength, and the randomized trials their their very nature are very long short uh, uh, short term uh, um, relative to life and to this type of adaptations um, they usually last for a couple of weeks um, and. We uh, were limited with, ty- with what are we measuring. We would usually measure a type of uh, short-term adaptations, some some kind of signaling pathways, which would be arguably lead to hypertrophy. And um, sometimes uh, these signaling and these short-term adaptations and these short-term effects are not necessarily, uh, uh, they don't necessarily transfer to actual hypertrophy. As an example, I would say, uh, uh, will be with um, vegan uh, diet and uh, omnivore diet. So uh, there are uh, there is uh, uh, there are evidence that uh, 
if you eat animal protein, your muscle protein synthesis would, uh, would be, be greater than if you eat plant-based protein. But uh, the studies that I've, uh, actually one study that I've read that looked at the long-term uh, effect of being on a vegan uh, diet, I'm not advocating for the vegan diet, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking for evidence and for objective approach. And I think that yeah. if, you, if you would be cautious about... Um, uh, what type of protein you choose with vegan uh, type of sources, protein sources. In long term, you would be more or less the same ballpark as uh, omnivore athlete, give or take. So what, uh, what would be your take on that? And uh, how would we tackle in studies uh, this short-term adaptations and how would we try to give an, um, recommendations to this long-term adaptation of muscle hypertrophy and muscle strength. Hi, just to remind you guys, this podcast is designed to promote my upcoming nutritional service called FoodieU. FoodieU is an app that is being built by a nutritionist, myself, to make it easier for users to receive personal meal plan. Algorithm-based service will reduce waiting time for you to receive meal plan two seconds. This application also plans to implement the psychological support team to optimize user adaptation in the process of healthy nutrition. Despite the algorithm, a descriptive, distinctive feature of this application will be also possible of online meeting with high-level specialists in order to build up more detailed and effective nutrition plan. Also, users will have access to their online library with educational articles, books, and guides where knowledge about nutrition, health, and fitness will be stored. Users will also receive detailed recipes with an integrated interface and a shopping list according to their personal meal plan. Also, the meal plan will include explanation about one or another ingredient. So we focus more about education rather than storing you all for being endless subscription-based service. Our main goal is to change the mindset built around nutrition, uh, healthy nutrition. It's also aim is to break the stereotypes about healthy nutrition and show everybody that healthy nutrition is fun and easy to follow. I think considering the design of the study and what its limitations are definitely matters. So if you, if you do put them head to head, you do see that vegan protein sources, although there is actually some now that can compete. Uh, there's like bacterially produced yeah, synthetic. Yeah. Pro- yes. But the one uh, that's Bill Gates pushing for, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think yeah. Stu Phillips, actually, Dr. Stu Phillips recently did a study on, yeah. uh, on that protein and found that the yeah. anabolic response was similar to, uh, meat or a, a full complement of EAAs. Yeah. So, but if we just look at different study designs and try to sort of bring all this evidence together, a picture sort of emerges. So the boluses the, that they're giving people when they measure the muscle protein synthetic response are in isolation. So you give someone 30 grams, 40 grams, or of protein or 12 grams plus EAA or yeah, you would have to look at specific study designs and try to piece them together and try to create a story. There's definitely going to be known on unknowns and unknown unknowns. So Mm -hmm. unknowns that you know that you're not measuring and know that you're not accounting for. And then some things that you just simply don't know that you don't know. Um, But (laughs) I think you can create a story. An inception right there, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, I think P 
piecing together everything here, you can create a story that makes sense. So if you measure the muscle protein synthetic response from a less complete protein in isolation with one single bolus given, then you see that there is a difference in anabolic response. But in the real world, people are mixing different types of plant proteins and the digestion at which those occur is slower because they're eating other things in meals with those amino acids. And that slowing of digestion might give them more time to complement those half, half of the EAAs with other EAAs. So taking one isolated picture of just comparing one to the other is not exactly what happens in the real world which is not a slight on the study. The study is looking specifically at, all right, we want to isolate this variable, see what happens, and then we'll make judgments past that and make practical considerations past that using this information. So the information is the principle or the finding and isolating. And then you take that information and you apply it by saying, okay, well, what happens when you add food that slows digestion? What happens when you pair amino acids from different vegetable sources? What happens when the person is uh, an endurance runner or uh, a different context? So it's definitely not something that you wanna, oh, this study showed this, I need to automatically apply it. You need to think about, all right, what context did this study do this in? And how long did they measure the muscle protein synthetic response? Uh, who, who was the population? What did they give beforehand? Were they fasted? And so on and so forth. So it definitely yeah. needs to be contextualized before you make, you know. It's the same, uh, the, the same uh, nature occurs with the glycemic index. A lot of people uh, who just start learning about nutrition, they would rely a lot about glycemic index. And they might be referring to a, uh, correct data like saying like this food is more glycemic than this food uh, but we know that we don't consume food we usually with this type of experiments we would ask uh, participants to come fasted so uh, the the amount of uh, glycemic response or with protein case it's uh, on, um, muscle protein response is so much greater than it's, it is in real life uh, because in real life we can we have we'll probably have consumed something two, three hours beforehand, we consume this particular meal and we consume it with something else. So just looking at the paper, uh, some people like would, you know, say like, look, this study showed that the white, white bread is, has, shows greater uh, glycemic index, so we should avoid it. First of all, that's a separate issue that we should even yeah, you mod <laughs> moderate glycemic index, but just with limitation of the study, I think, it will be great mm -hmm. if we would, in abstract, would put something uh, with practical implications involved, you know, because sometimes the abstract is just introduction to two short sentences, methodology, uh, results, and then the conclusion. So just raw data. Well, there is no interpretation of the studies, you know, and people would just open an abstract and they would just say, okay, so uh, uh, plant-based protein is probably less superior because it showed less of a, 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 a protein response. So we should, therefore, we should avoid it and uh, it's less superior to um, animal uh, protein. But yeah, uh, we know that it's not the case with, with the things that you've already explained. Could you maybe uh, outline some other variables that... Uh, in ideal scenario, would prefer in terms of muscle protein uh, synthesis. I mean, in muscle hypertrophy and strength 
how would you would conduct a perfect study where you would try to uh, be pra uh, practical, but at the same time, uh, we could look at the longer picture, longer adaptation of muscle hypertrophy. What would be the variables to look at, no matter who we are testing? Yeah, so the ideal, I mean, there's always limitations because anything you do is going to, I mean, unless you could pull people into a metabolic ward, control every single thing they ate and control all of their activity and literally just try to control as many variables as possible. Ideally, they'd be twins, you know, groups of twins. And so you account for genetics and everything like that. So uh, there's no perfect study, but the studies that can generally get at more practical questions. So sometimes you're trying to isolate mechanisms, but sometimes you're trying to look at, all right, practically, what would happen if we did this? So there's going to be limitations, but in the real world, if you make people do something and you get two different outcomes, that's very informative. So if you tell this group to only consume plant protein and you tell this group to only consume meat protein, then there's going to be some limitations that come with that. Maybe the plant protein group can't get the necessary amount of protein. Maybe the um, meat protein group ends up eating more calories and so on. But that's an ecologically valid question because if you tell a whole bunch of people to do one thing and the outcome is whatever the outcome is, you can make practical decisions on a population level from those outcomes, you can say, okay, we weren't able to isolate the variable of protein quality because of the fact that calories weren't equated, but it seems like in free living people, they eat less when you give them a diet of vegetarian versus um, meat eating and so on. So anytime you, oops, I think I took a screenshot by accident, but yeah, anytime you create a, anytime you create a study design, you want to think about is it possible for me to isolate this variable? And what am I going to gain from this specific design? So there, to answer your question, there's no perfect study design, but one that would isolate this specific question of uh, vegan versus um, meat or full complement EAA protein sources would be essentially just providing people adequate protein, one from plants and one from any complete protein source having them resistance train over, let's say 10 to 12 weeks, and then measuring, you can either use, you can use any of the body comp methods, DEXA, um, you can do ultrasound, you can, ideally you can have a muscle protein synthetic marker over periods of time too. So you can use deuterated water in order to measure uh, muscle protein synthesis over a longer period of time. The problem is, is that those studies get super expensive. So you need to decide how, how expensive what, how expensive if you used deuterated water and i'm not the one purchasing this stuff so um but yeah like it's definitely in the i think if you did a study with 30 people it it, it would climb up to i think 70k just 70k dollars yeah seven zero yeah seven zero um yeah. And then MRI, like we're, we're working on a study. If you want to, if you want to do MRI, I think we're going to have 40 people in an upcoming study. And that's also 70 K because it's, I believe $200 in an hour per. What is yeah, it for you? Why would you, uh, why would you spend so much money, so much money? I and mean, probably you would take very small fraction of it, if any at all, uh, from, from this budget, um, this is like, I'm trying to play devil's advocate, you know? So I'm saying like, 
Yeah. Okay, you're getting so much money. Where are you, where is this money coming from? Why? And you're saying that you're not you don't have an incentive of showing certain results, you know, on certain supplements, and you uh-huh. you have the seventy k in your pocket, and uh, you know they tell you to show certain results. What made you what made you convince to convince me uh, that you're not doing that? You know. <laughs> so well, one sometimes the results. So essentially, there's donors that just give money to labs. So we've gotten money from donors that's no strings attached. And, they're, and we're looking at variables that it doesn't really, like the interest isn't to sell a supplement on the back end and things like that. So there are definitely donation-based um, grants that we get that we can study essentially whatever we want or what the specific donor wants, but that isn't attached to any sort of supplement that they can sell on the back end. So that's one. Sometimes the study doesn't necessarily lend itself to selling anything on the back end. But the second piece is that you just need to have integrity and put in place things that would not allow you to unduly affect the results. So we, we all have our biases and we, and the, co- the company definitely has a bias that's, that's giving us the money. But if we say, here's what we're going to put in place, the researcher who's doing the scans, the ultrasound, let's say is blinded to who received the treatment versus the placebo. So let's say whatever, let's just say it's, creatine the creatine company wants us to look at a different you know type of creatine and they uh, give it to us they give us a, a good amount of money and we decide to study it we up front tell them this is what we're going to do and baked into that cake is how we account for potential biases so the blinding of the researcher doing the measurements and uh that's i mean that's really a a, a the biggest component, the blinding, but there's certain things that just really can't be, can't be done in terms of like for resistance training studies, people say this all the time. And I'm always dumbfounded that they say this, they say, Oh, it wasn't blinded to the research assistants. How are you going to, or to the participants, how are you going to blind people from believing that they're doing exercise? Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how that's, they're like, it wasn't double blind. I'm like, I don't know how we're going to make people believe they're exercising when they're not exercising. And I don't know how I'm going to train them and be there to observe the training without being there to observe the training. So there's some issues that you're just never going to please everyone. And I think they just have a misunderstanding of what blinding is, but there um, there is another, another topic that I've tried to research recently that you could not potentially blind because of the nature of the things that have been researched is mm -hmm. the sexual, sexual activity to, uh, and its effect to exercise. You could not possibly blind a person. You cannot give a placebo, you know? (laughs) So you're like, the person has a bias, uh, that, sexual activity will decrease or increase your performance before an exercise or before a competition uh, he uh, or she uh, might have that bias uh, and it yeah. might affect the results so that's when the numbers come into play you would rather have a lot yeah a lot the group of... level yeah yeah and uh, but there is just certain nature with uh, with uh, certain things that we measure as you said with supplements it's pretty much simple you just double blind it you just give a yeah i don't know starch as a, as a placebo it's Discreetin especially, it doesn't have any side effects. So the participant has no uh, uh, way to understand if he's taking placebo or not. Like with maybe with betalanine, it's a little bit different. Caffeine tos- might be a little bit different as well. But like generally speaking, yeah. right, uh, with certain things that we measure, which simply could not go over the blinding, uh, not being able to blind, 
that's the thing we should consider, but we should not neglect the studies. We should, this is evidence still, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be limitations, but I don't think personally that that is a significant limitation in terms of them well, knowing why, why, that they exercised. Why don't you think this is not significant evidence? Don't you think that this bias would potentially lead to a lot of um, skewing the data and maybe not being objective in terms of performance by the participants? Well, um, a lot of the time when you're, so for example, let's say you get two groups of trained individuals, right? They're training already. And mm -hmm. so when you give one group of individuals a certain type of training and another group of individuals another type of training, I don't think that there's a strong rationale to believe that one group is going to believe that that specific modality is going to have such a robust effect on hypertrophy. And I also think that the, even though we talked about this to some extent, I think that there's some things that lend themselves more to placebo than others. I think pain and things that can be modulated better by what the psychology that you come into things with. I don't think that hypertrophy is as modifiable with a psychological background than some other variables like um, that are more that lend themselves more to psychology. Mm -hmm. So I think those two things, one that you're two groups of people who are already exercising that you're just giving two different types of exercise to and two that I don't think that it lends it placebo lends itself as well to think hard, harder outcomes for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. And uh, with this kind of uh, easy transition, we're moving to the next topic, which is the exactly uh, this type of uh, topic, which I, which is hard to control for in terms of placebo, uh, is the uh, strength uh, lengthening of muscle and uh, how it affects the muscle uh, hypertrophy. So you've been involved in the study, which I read a couple of times and I wrote a post in different language into, uh, on it, uh, which is how uh, stretching uh, a muscle, particularly calf muscles would affect um, hypertrophy and signal hypertrophy signaling. Uh, so is, is, we could talk about it from two perspectives. First is uh, how mm -hmm. in general, is it a good idea to just to stretch muscles after after working set and uh, somebody who have a lacking muscle part uh, lacking calves specifically these people a lot of them exist and so hard to overcome this genetic uh, uh, limitation would they would stretching help them so could you please talk about the study study design how did you perform it and what would be the practical implications yeah so this study was done in Dr. Brad Schoenfeld's lab at uh, Lehman. So it was led by my homie, Derek. He's at actually McMaster now with Dr. Stu Phillips. So he, <clears throat> so what we did essentially is we had two groups of people doing straight leg calf raises and bent leg calf raises. One group was traditional training where they just did four sets between eight to 12 reps and they took normal rest periods in between two minutes uh, in between sets. While the other group, they did the normal training, but right after the set, they, well, actually this is a within subject design. So it was one leg versus the other yeah. leg. Yeah. So yeah. one leg did normal calf training, the other leg, right after they were done with the set, they dropped into a stretch with the same load that they were doing for the set. So let's say you were doing 90 pounds 
with one leg on the seated calf raise. You did 10 reps. You couldn't do any more. You dropped straight into the stretch for 20 seconds. And then after you dropped into the stretch, we, we helped you lift it up because it's a nightmare without it. So just a disclaimer, if you're doing it on the seated calf raise, make sure somebody's there to, to help yeah. you lift it up. Lift it up. If, you, if you can't do it yourself, once, once there's a lot of plates on there, it can be an issue for sure. So mm. yeah, we were trying to compare whether weighted sorry just stretch. one yeah. one disclaimer 90 pounds yeah. is 40 almost 41 kilogram <laughs> oh yeah yeah sorry <laughs> sorry yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly so we we measured strength so we measured isometric strength using a, a dynamometer and we also measured hypertrophy using ultrasound so muscle thickness of the lateral gastroc the medial gastroc and the um soleus and what we found was that the, there were no differences in the gastroc, but there was a small but potentially meaningful difference in the soleus in the group that did the weighted stretch, or not the group, the leg, I keep saying group, uh, yeah. the leg that did the weighted stretch. And there's a lot of speculation as to why that potentially occurred. But the one speculation that I'm not sure I totally buy yet is that the soleus is more slow twitch compared to the gastroc and having that time under tension that was significantly greater might have contributed to the extra anabolism that they experienced yeah it's, uh, there were like i was surprised so uh to have an uh, to read the explanation uh, to why that uh, why that happened there was like very brief explanation <laughs> like a couple maybe two yeah. sentences three sentences about it but because you know this differences have occurred why they have occurred and, and there are like only a couple of sentences yeah so i i was like how how do I word it, you know, to, to sound it to make it sound good, you know? And yeah. why would you um well, for me, I don't know, because you're more into uh, muscle architecture, into muscle differences, uh, into types of types of um, uh, muscle fibers. Uh for me, it sounds like the best uh, explanation we could come up with right now is that uh when you stretch a calf muscle, especially in the seated, seated position, you're was this muscle called in, in Latin again? Uh, they had this, this but it's, it wasn't only seated, it was seated and straight. Ah, and seated and straight. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So that's so why I, I, thought, I, I see where you're going with it, that the soleus would grow more from a bent like cab race. Yeah, but because it's we did four sets. Yeah. It's, uh, it's that the, it's not that the soleus is being stretched more. So in a seated position, the gastroc has less ability to contract because it's being shortened on one side because the gastroc crosses the knee. So when you bend the leg, now you're shortening that muscle. So it has less ability mm -hmm. to um, produce force. So the if, if we were comparing seated versus standing, then you could potentially make that argument. But we were doing four sets of standing calf raises or leg press calf weight raises where the knee was straight and then four sets where we're seated. So it was eight sets total for each leg. The only difference was that one leg dropped into a stretch in between while the other did not. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you couldn't really account for that by the seated. Um, but to sort of try to answer your question in terms of why it was like a short line and we just threw it out there is that when you do a study like this, it sort of goes back to what you were saying. We're looking at differences, outcome differences, but we're not really getting at mechanisms. We didn't look at signaling. We didn't look at what was going on architecturally. And so 
when journal journals want us to speculate to some extent in the discussion as to why things occurred so that way yeah. we can beget other studies but mm -hmm. it was a very loose speculation <laughs> so we were we're, we're not confident in, in the assertion just yet i think we, we need more evidence yeah, in that, order to that's say why it's exactly. called speculation yeah. That's why yeah, it's called exactly. <laughs> but yeah, would you sure. come up with? I don't think that we would uh, at that stage. Uh, again, given my lack of uh, experience yeah. and knowledge into it, I don't think I could come up with any other logical explanation to, to today than this. You know. Yeah. But but yeah, would I you agree. think? Uh, would you think that uh, for next study, just to mm -hmm. check if uh, one muscle uh, would have uh, effect in terms of like mm. uh, squeeze? Um, I mean knee uh, when the knee is flexed or not do you yeah. think we, we would uh, find a better result if we would do just one exercise so eight sets into seated left color raises or eight sets <laughs> into raised uh, into standing uh, heel raises so what do you think um in terms of the design you mean one with the stretch with the weighted stretch afterward i mean like so you did um where you would do four sets into seated position and four sets into standing position, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. uh, don't you think that uh, it would... Uh, so you say that when you're seated, you are... Uh, which muscle again? I'm. Uh, yeah, you're shortening the gastro. The gastro. gastro. Yeah, gastro. It's the gastro So yeah. let's say that we only do uh, standing uh, just to uh, cross out this mm -hmm. variable that, is, that this muscle is shortened. Do you think that it will be a good type of hypothesis to do a, a further study to, to to check the speculation or not? So, to, but it's kind of the same question. Uh, are you trying to isolate whether standing or seated with weighted stretch is better or just standard or seated alone? I'm not sure. So you do just standing. You do just with the weighted stretch. Yes, with the weighted so stretch. So standing weighted stretch versus seated weighted stretch. Yeah, that'd and be then, that'd be a and great then see, way. Maybe maybe if like this uh, position of the knee actually affects certain mm -hmm. muscles or exactly, like the calf yeah. or not. Yeah, I think. Yeah, so that would be that would be a great next design. So essentially, you do one group standing calf raise, they drop into the weighted stretch, and the other group do the seated calf raise, they drop into the weighted stretch, and if you find that only the seated group got the benefit from the weighted stretch and they got more soleus growth um then potentially you're looking at something that is specific to a certain muscle or fiber type so that would help isolate there's there's some issues with with that design just like there's issues with every design but i think that would help in mm -hmm. um getting at the question because the problem is is that the soleus is still involved in the standing as well mm -hmm. So how to sort of traverse that? Uh, I'd have yeah, to man. I'd have to think about it for a bit. Yeah. So yeah, it's man. not but super straightforward. People are you know yeah yeah yeah. Here you are. Here's yeah. uh here's a study design that we just produced. So yeah. <laughs> whoever whoever is uh, listening or watching it could you know give it a go. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Uh, what would be the practical implication again? So I'm the one. Let, I'm not the one, but let's say I'm the one who has problems with calves, who has skinny calves. And uh, who, who, <laughs> I've seen your calves. You do not have that problem. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My friends, several of my friends do have this problem, uh, especially uh, this, uh, for some reason, maybe you know the reason. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, race, it's come, uh, I don't know if there is an actual correlation, but I, I find it uh, based on my uh, subjective ob observation that black people tend yeah. to have uh, thinner calves. 
Uh, do you think uh, there is um, like genetic predisposition uh, or or not? And uh, how would it help mm-hmm. for people who are lack of uh, calf muscles to improve this particular study? How would it help them to to grow their calves? Um, yeah. So in terms of the just to sort of get the um, question of the length of the calf out of the way, I think the longer Achilles, especially in black people, does actually help in running performance and jumping performance, um, especially explosive type, uh, activities, but in terms of calf gains, uh, and the genetics surrounding that, it seems very clear that some people are more gifted in that arena. It's been really hard to isolate what genes are involved. I think there's a lot of work being done, but we're really in the infancy of being able to predict there's certain negative predictors uh, that are a little bit more robust in terms of, all right, if they have these genes, they're probably more endurance oriented and probably less likely to hypertrophy. And even that is a a bit, um, speculative in terms of there's exceptions to the rule in terms of people that have those, uh, polymorphisms and Mm -hmm. still have, they're still jacked for lack of a better term. So would you suggest, would you suggest for people, uh, for people to, uh, do, uh, um, underload, uh, stretch after a set? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you always want to think about the downsides of doing something and the upsides of doing something when we piloted this data and actually training participants, there's not a drop-off or at least not a dramatic drop-off in reps when you do the weighted stretch in between, even when we standardize time in between sets. So if you think about the cost benefit and what's going on at the level of the muscle, I find it hard to believe that if the person's doing the same amount of reps afterward and they're getting that extra tension in that lengthened position, which we know is hypertrophic, that there's going to be a significant downside. So in my, in my head, it's only upside and very little downside. So I think that, especially if you're struggling with it, but even if you just want to, you know, try out a I new have, technique. Uh, I, ha- yeah. I have one comment about it. I, I actually don't agree sure. to some extent because of the, um, if you think like, if you train chest, for example, and if you stretch yeah. your chest after every set, uh, I think there are studies, uh, I'm not, um, um, again, I'm not, I haven't looked into them, but I think there are studies yeah. where, mm-hmm. where they would stretch a muscle uh, after sets, uh, especially not under load. And they would show a uh, decrease in power in the, or, or decrease in strength, or probably both. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if you stretch muscle after a set uh, into yeah. next sets, is it, is, it, is it true? Is it valid point? Yeah, so power is definitely more affected by stretch than strength. Strength is, is affected um, to some extent, for sure. But you need to think about context as well. So one, I do believe that that's something that could super easily be measured in the individual uh, in terms of, is there a rep drop-off? You go in one time, you do the weighted stretch, you standardize the rest period and see if there is a rep drop-off. Um, mm-hmm. So that's something that you can look at individually and see whether that's happening in you. And the second thing is, is that, so like for the chest, there might be a difference in the time. So for example, let's say for the calf, in order for the calf to recover fully between a normal set for the average person, is about a minute, right? And we use two minutes. So if we did the weighted stretch plus the rest period, it might've been enough rest 
that the weighted stretch didn't have a negative effect on the reps. But for the chest, it might be a different story. It might be that the amount of time because of the composition of the chest and the fact that the soleus is super slow twitch and all that kind of stuff might be the composition of the chest or the architecture needs a bit more rest. So in order to uh, not have a rep drop off in a muscle like the chest, you might need more time in between sets and you need to decide what that cost benefit is probably for each muscle group, not take this as like, Oh, I could do a weighted stretch on every muscle and not yeah. experience any rep drop off. I'm very confident that that won't be the case. We were actually surprised when we didn't see any rep drop off on average. There were definitely people who did have, uh, and they were suffering and they had, they had a rep drop off, but on average, we were pretty surprised just from what we saw mm -hmm. that there wasn't, uh, uh, a significant rep drop off, but you get what I'm saying with the threshold where it seems mm -hmm. like caps recover pretty quickly between sets. So the fact that our rest periods were uh, robust enough to potentially account for the weighted stretch period mm -hmm. might've allowed for that rep drop off to not occur. Does so the takeaway, uh, takeaway message from this study will probably be try stretching your calves uh, after workout. And if you have enough time to have a rest, after because as you said some participants could experience a rep drop off if you if they stretch this muscle uh so yeah again try not after to, the workout though after the set after, after the, the set. set yeah, yeah after yeah. the set i mean into the ongoing following sets right yeah exactly yeah. so you yeah. would you would do the set and then drop into the stretch and then yeah, rest. yeah, yeah. so yep. uh try out it potentially in terms of calves specifically could lead to um hypertrophy potentially right and with other muscles not so much probably not at all like as i said with the uh, calf muscle uh, with the <laughs> chest muscle especially and probably back muscle uh, i'm not sure that uh i'm not sure that they wouldn't experience benefit you should need to be careful with the cost benefit in terms of you might need to rest a bit longer or you might want to do it mm -hmm. during a, a specific uh mm -hmm. like let's By say the end of the lower workout. volume yeah, yeah, by like the end of the workout. Or the end or a workout where you're doing potential, let's say you're doing chest tricep and you're doing less volume for chest and more volume for tricep, you could include. So, but I do think that uh, other muscles would benefit, but you also need to think about how to practically implement something mm -hmm. and the safety of implementing it. Dropping into a weighted stretch after something like uh, fly might, might be useful, but I've seen people's shoulders not love that in terms of just like staying in that stretch position. Um, yeah, especially never, especially under yeah. the working weight, man. It's like if you, yeah, if you exactly, 10 yeah. sets to failure or most of it, like you're not gonna be able to hold for long. Yeah. 10 reps, yeah, exactly. So there's definitely um, issues with how to actually implement this. For the calf, it's super easy. And that's why we chose it because uh, Dr. Schoenfeld cares a lot about, all right, how can we practically apply this concept to the gym you know, right now mm -hmm. kind of thing. So with the cab, you could drop down super easy. It seems to uh, recover pretty well for a chest fly or for a squat. I mean, you don't want to be pinned at the bottom of a squat, for example, doing your, yeah. doing your freaking, I mean, you could technically do it, set up some safeties, but I just wouldn't recommend the low back's yeah. going to be fatigued. There's other issues there. So yeah, yeah. the cab is a prime candidate. Other muscles, you need to be pretty cognizant of, of probably what's arms going on and like into isolated position isolated exercises like your arms biceps and triceps would probably will be another practical uh approach to do yeah you arms. could hang yeah in like an overhead position you can like hang out in yeah, that yeah, like you can keep bicep. the dumbbell overhead keep it there yeah for sure so it's something that we can 
definitely think about in terms of maybe replicating it in another muscle. And that makes sense from an ecologically valid perspective. You're giving me all these study designs. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> man, we can work together. We can work together, you know? <laughs> Just send me an email, man. Yeah. I have so many ideas. I actually have uh, one already uh, proposal for a PhD, uh, mm -hmm. which didn't work out uh, in February. Uh, but I had um, um, already a proposal to test uh, beta-alanine on football players. Mm. Um, oh, if you're interested into it, I can send you over and see. Um, yeah, because it hasn't been tested on the yeah. professional. Yeah. Um, a lot about of things it. happen. Yeah. Yeah. On the profession. And yeah. especially, uh, like, yeah, it's another, another, another topic about how it's hard yeah. to um translate and to uh, extrapolate the data from uh, uh study of uh, participant level of athletes uh, who are usually um average level um let's say gym goers and so on uh, or maybe below yeah. it to yeah. athletes who potentially would need this kind of techniques would need this kind of because most of the people just need to go to the gym regularly you know just to uh, heavy, <laughs> yeah. heavy weights and just they'll be fine like this guy a lot of this kind of mm -hmm. methods are will be only applicable to people who are already tried it all you know and yeah i think that's a that's a good point but also going back to the limitations and designs and stuff like that many times i mean humans are humans so if you see a supplement work on average in regular individuals, unless you have a mechanism of action that you're confident in, you could be fairly sure, or you could be at least somewhat confident, not confident, but somewhat confident that it's going to translate to higher level athletics and so on. There are some, so like, for example, like trained versus untrained, then, then some issues start occurring, but in people who are fairly well-trained, I wouldn't be super uh, afraid to apply, especially supplement outcomes. There's definitely training uh, yeah. things that I would be very skeptical of, of to translate to the elite level from when yeah. you're studying it. And people who aren't elite there, there's massive issues there in, in pretty much every endeavor and outcome, uh, physiological outcome. But when it comes to supplements, based on the mechanism of action, stuff like that, you could mm -hmm. probably be more or less sure that it would translate. Like for example, creatine, you could probably say that creatine would have less of a benefit in elite athletics because, uh, or people who are very well-trained because they might have already more efficiently stored creatine. So like you have a mechanism of action there where you're yeah. like, all right, there might be slightly less of a benefit in this population because of this. But if you can't think of something like that, then you can be fairly confident that it's going to translate it, at least yeah. to, to some extent. If that makes sense. And it's again about cost yeah. benefit, right? So what, what, yeah. just in case, there's really just, no downside to some yeah. things. Yeah. Beta alanine, like, yeah, worst case, they, you know, get some they discomfort from the tingles or whatever. Yeah. 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 I'm talking about um, the difference between athletes. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, the buffering uh, capacity of professional athletes. Uh, are much greater uh, so mm -hmm. like betalanine nitrates and sodium bicarbonate uh, yeah. there, there is a consistency in the data that shows that the higher the, the level of athletes there the less of an effect these supplements bring mm -hmm. and i think it's just with everything and so also with the uh, training methodology if they are effective you know you're already at a professional level well, how much more you can gain you know <laughs> so yeah for yeah. sure and in terms of it might just like little differences in the so like running mechanics or something like that like on to a normal individual you make some slight changes and you see dramatic difference but as somebody who's been 
competing at the hot, I, I, I'm going to be very hesitant before changing, changing the mechanics of somebody that's been, you know, breaking records and stuff like that. So it's just cost yeah, benefit. We know it's a, a more. We, yeah. we know it's a different type of supplements they're consuming if they improve yeah. their <laughs> performance by dramatically yeah, exactly. at that level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you again for answering these questions. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Like it means a lot, like giving so much of a valid information and actually helping, uh, for for others like to better understand science better understand things that they're doing and uh, um i like listening to podcasts myself and sometimes um like listening to somebody who who are doing the research is probably uh not at the same level of uh, hierarchy of evidence as reading their actual studies but i think it's just, uh, <laughs> if if we can choose between doing nothing and listening to studies it's probably like if you're on the way to home or in the gym doing cardio don't listen to podcasts while doing weights <laughs> but if you're just uh on, on the trip or somewhere listening to podcasts is such a good idea and yeah thank you again for coming over it, i think it will actually help us to promote science uh, just that's the that's the main point yeah and, thanks for having me on it was it was fun um last question actually uh yeah sure well, um somebody like my personal question so I want to start do, doing PhD, as I said, at some point. I like uh, academia um, and I like the science in general and approaches and just the language of the way it's been com is communicated. Um, what advice would you give for people uh, who want to start a PhD and what's your personal experience? What's your do's and don'ts and pros and cons? So yeah, this would probably be a better question to ask me when I'm done with my PhD and then I can just, you know, talk shit and say all <laughs> kinds of, you know, bad things about how it didn't work out for me and now I'm a garbage man and all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> I'll try I'll try to give my two cents. So I think deciding, you mean like deciding whether you want a PhD or people who already decided they want to do the PhD and things that would help them sort of like prepare. I'm the one who's done a master's. Yeah. Let's say I haven't done a master's. Let's yeah. say I've done only a bachelor degree. I could... Okay. have a chance like some people who want to start a phd or thinking about phd yeah. in general what what is this experience is like uh to you yeah so i think in terms of my experience it's been amazing so i've got to work with you know uh dr brad schoenfeld who is just doing a lot of good work in hypertrophy and i've, mm -hmm. I've never met someone more passionate about answering practical questions in hypertrophy than him and then uh, my current mentor, uh, Dr. Mike Roberts is just brilliant, uh, has a super good understanding of molecular and he helps sort of traverse the molecular and the applied side. So I personally am super passionate about the subjects and I couldn't envision myself not taking it to the end in terms of seeing how are these things actually done, uh, and taking that information and using those techniques in order to try to answer questions that I have. So I think I'm in potentially a, a unique position where I have the ability to do that. And I sort of couldn't see another way while others are trying to sort of see what's the cost benefit in terms of, I want to be in strength and conditioning. Should I get a PhD? Then that's a, that's a super hard question in terms of, all right, what doors is it going to open? Um, for the most, for most people, I'd probably discourage them from doing a PhD because um, the amount of doors it opens is, is not a whole lot. If you want to be in academia and if you want to run studies, you want to be a professor, you have to do it. Like it's just a must. But if you want to do something outside of that, then I think thinking about 
why you're doing it long and hard uh, is is definitely important mm -hmm. because you're becoming more specialized, not less. So if you want, if you're in strength and conditioning and you're doing a PhD, a lot of the times you're focusing on a super specific set of questions, and your and your job is to be a generalist when you're in strength and conditioning, not a specialist. So a lot of the people that are doing it just to get the credential that might be paid more. That's, that's fine. I think if, if you're sure that you're going to be paid more with the credential, then do it. But if you're not sure about that, that's a whole lot of opportunity cost. It's a, it's a, it's a huge commitment. It's a lot of work. Uh, and it's a lot of time where you could be potentially also making money. So unless you're sure that it's going to open the doors you want at, and, you're passionate about answering those questions, learning the techniques that it takes to answer those questions. I'd more, more than likely discourage it, not encourage it. <laughs> yeah. Talking sense. about opening doors. Uh, I've been advised by, uh, Ryle Morgans, who is, um, strength and conditioning coach of Wales national team. He was a strength and conditioning coach and still is remotely with CSK Moscow. And he mm -hmm. worked with, um, many t uh, British Premier League teams. So he's got a lot of experience and he says, if you want to be a good nutritionist, sport nutritionist, or like uh, do uh, have a good position in professional football, uh, you call it soccer. <laughs> uh, yeah. You would need to. I don't know. <laughs> you mean the one where we throw the ball, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the one where you throw the ball and you call it football. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you. you would, he says that you would you would need to do a PhD to be a good to be uh, to open up this career path to be in, a, in professional sports. So, yeah, and if you look at the people who work there, they're, well, most of them mm, do have PhDs. Yeah. Yeah. So if it, if it opens those doors, for sure, then that would be, yeah. So I think, yeah, as long as you consider which doors it opens and you're sure that it opens those doors, then it'll definitely be. And I think you can, people say that it's sort of like a specialized, and you do have to specialize in some extent as to what your dissertation should be. But you can make your PhD experience more generalized if you wish in terms of taking classes that are more geared toward, you know, having a better full understanding, running studies that are more applied and working with other students that are doing other applied questions. So if you know exactly what you want, you can make it a more, a more geared toward what you're looking for. There is a new new way of yeah. uh, doing PhD is PhD by publication. If you've heard about it, it's like when you publish around ten studies, and then basically a thesis <laughs> comes in from from this. So we don't need to go do any coursework. You just publish studies, basically. What do you think about it? I have I have heard of it. Um, I think I think Alan was considering. I think Brad was um pushing Alan to consider doing something like that because obviously he has a ton of publications and. What do I think about it? I think it really just depends on if your goal, like what is the goal of the PhD? If the goal of the PhD is to learn techniques and run the studies, then you're not going to be really learning. It depends on how much of an active role you had in the studies, in my opinion. If you had no active role in the studies and you just contributed to writing the papers, I would be more hesitant to say that they would be as deserving as someone that was, you know, putting in the yeah. work and then the long hours. And I, it might just be a personal bias of mine. I'm like, I'm, su you know, I'm yeah. suffering <laughs> for this. And then, and then the, and then some guy just does, uh, yeah, just finishes the contributes conclusions. The, yeah. yeah. And you, 
And you'd be surprised what little you have to do in order to get your name on a paper sometimes in terms of like really? uh, the con- the contribution. Because it, it, it's like a personal decision at, to some extent by the researcher um, who's running the study. So uh, there there's some that are really rigorous about who and some that are not. So I would be hesitant because of the fact that you could potentially get situations where let's say I'm a researcher and you know, I've, I, I'm tenured or whatever, and you're my buddy, you know, we just got along and I want to help you out. I just put you on a whole bunch of my papers and yeah, man, you, you help out a bit. I'm not going <laughs> to, he already promised this, so, you know, <laughs> exactly. We talked, we, we'll talk about it off air, but yeah, essentially yeah. I Name don't, your price, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. So I don't, yeah, I'm a little hesitant. I'd have to see like, what are the details? How much involvement did they have to have? Do they need to take comps? Because there's tests that are generally involved in the PhD progress uh, process that uh, show that you have a commensurate level of understanding and all that kind of stuff. So I think it can be done. And I love that kind of stuff, like in the trenches type stuff where, all right, if you're producing work and you're involved in the studies and uh, you're doing all that stuff, you should be deserving of, of, of the title and get all that comes with it. But I would have to see what, goes into that before uh, jumping on the bandwagon just yet yeah yeah man um thanks again to uh, have the time to talk it was uh, really important for me uh, and really uh, interesting information for me i think we're going to conclude with this here and thank you very much for coming mm-hmm. and if you uh, if anyone would want to listen to to us talk again if you have any other questions please uh, leave them out in the comments and we will probably try to answer them some other time Thank you. That's, this is it. I really enjoyed talking with Daniel and I hope that you did too. My favorite part was when, the, when we talked about hierarchy of evidence and how do you have a discussion with your client or friend who would rather trust a personal experience than really rely on piles of scientific evidence. If you like this podcast, please leave a like and subscribe to my channel and to know about footy new upcoming updates and when new podcasts are coming out. Thank you and stay tuned for more.